Father, we together give praise to Your name. We say hallelujah. Great are You, Lord. Worthy to be praised. You are Creator, Sustainer, Redeemer. You are our rock in our salvation. There is none higher. There is none better. There is none bigger. There is none stronger. There is none purer than You, O Lord. Worthy is Your name to be praised. We honor You this morning. Father, we approach You this morning knowing that in the midst of Your glory and Your greatness and Your purity and Your perfections, we confess that we're a broken people. We're, we have broken lives. We, we have broken situations. We have broken health and broken families and broken relationships. And we, we don't want to hide this. We don't want to ignore it this morning. Father, we want to come before You in our brokenness and in our problematic situations. And we want to ask You to flood our lives, flood our hearts, flood our relationships. Lord, we don't want to ignore them. We ask You to come Come in and take over them. And Father, we specifically pray for some people that we, we love and dearly care about. And we know that You are working, but we want to pray for our friend and brother Cody Hill at Iron City, who is back in the hospital. We we, we plead for You to spare His life. We plead for You to care mercifully for His body, His stomach, all of his, the bacteria that is going on and moving about. And we just pray, Lord, that You would exercise Your sovereign authority and Your power and heal Him completely. Father, we pray for Dan Willoughby and the Seven Rivers Outreach in South Africa, and we ask that You would use this procedure on Tuesday to heal him, that he might serve alongside the Kemp's and the other families to advance Your Gospel and to plant churches and to care for orphans and to meet the needs of people who need Jesus Christ. Father, we have people who are grieving in our midst. We have Marsha Boyd who has lost her grandmother. We have people who are still struggling over the loss of their spouses, Mr. Williams we, and, and, and Millie Baker and Robbie Joplin. And Lord, death is a reality. We're living with it right now and want to pray that the comfort of the love of Jesus Christ would cover us today like a, a warm blanket would cover us in the midst of a chilly time. And Father, we pray that You would bring great encouragement and knowledge that You reign and that You restore and that You bring ultimate and eternal hope. Father, we now pray that You will speak powerfully to us through Your Word. We desperately need You to speak and we desperately need You to change us and transform us into the likeness of Your beloved Son our Savior Jesus Christ. So shine light in this moment, we pray for His sake. Amen. If you were to drive to the city cemetery in Childersburg, Alabama, you would find a gravestone that says James Thomas Limbaugh. Underneath his name, you would see two dates. The one on the left would read September 7th, 1919. 
The one on the right would read July 10th, 2005. If you're like me, and when you go to a cemetery, you, you see the dates of people's birth and the dates of people's death, and you conjure up in your mind what was going on in the world at the time of His birth and at the time of His death. I do that. I don't know if you do. But for James Limbaugh in 1919... Woodrow Wilson was the President of the United States and started the League of Nations. Herbert Hoover had been elected to, to do the, the war uh, relief effort in Europe post-World War I. Babe Ruth played for the Boston Red Sox and broke the all-time single season hitting uh, home run record at 28. was later traded to the Red Sox. The Chicago White Sox threw the World Series. They intentionally lost it in order so that they could get money from gamblers. That was 1919. 2005, George Bush, George W. Bush was the president. Condoleezza Rice was serving as the Secretary of State, first African-American woman to ever do so, to climb so high. Alex Rodriguez broke the home run record at 48 that season. And... With a little touch of irony, the Chicago White Sox won their first World Series since 1917. Now, you can think about those dates and those years, 1919, 2005, and when you look at the gravestone of James T. Limbaugh, if what you think about is 1919 and 2005, then you're thinking about the wrong thing. Because the thing that is significant about James T. Limbaugh is not what's on the left or what's on the right, but what stands in the middle, and that's a tiny little dash. The dash on his gravestone represents who he was and what he did and what he stood for and the lives that he impacted. What he did during the, de- during the dash determined the quality of his life and the significance of his life. He was my grandfather, and I got to preach his funeral in 2005. And I remember standing up in front of a couple of hundred people and preaching his funeral, and this is what I said about my grandfather. I said he was a faithful husband. I would walk into their house Every time that I would go, and above the fireplace was a picture of he and his wife, Frances. And wherever you saw him, you saw her. And wherever you saw her, you saw him. And they were fixtures in the family and fixtures in the community. And everybody knew that they loved one another. He was a faithful husband. He was a providing father. He cared for his children. He was a doting and gracious grandfather. That he cared for specific needs and practical needs. And he was a bit of a jokester, but also a provider as well. He was a kind-hearted man. He owned a, a, a hardware store, and at Christmas time, people had taken gifts at layaway on layaway throughout the year, and many of them couldn't end up being able to purchase the, the toys that they wanted for their kids, and, and he would just load them all up, even though they hadn't prayed them. He'd go house to house and just deliver the toys, even though they weren't paid for, because he was a kind-hearted man. He was a community leader. He served as president of the Little League and many other organizations. He was a loyal patriot. He fought valiantly in World War II and won many awards and protected our nation. And he was a valiant and, and great patriot. 
And the fact is, when I stood up and told all those people those truths about my grandfather, I didn't talk about the day he was born or the day that he died. I talked about the life that he lived. I delivered an epilogue, if you will. Some would call it a eulogy. But an epilogue is normally reserved for a piece of literature in which it's the end of the story. But it's not so much about the chronology of events as it is about the significance of the story. It's not so much about, and this happened next, and this happened next, and this happened next, the end. No. It's more like, this is why the story was important. This is the main message of the story. This is why everything that you just read is significant. And what we're about to approach in 2 Samuel 21-24 through is an epilogue. It's, it's not a chronology of events. It's the significance of a life lived in King David. But before we turn to the passage, I want to ask you a question, church. Everybody in this room is in the dash. And unless the Lord returns, there is going to be a date on the left and a date on the right. And I want to ask you right now, what are you doing with your dash? What are you doing with your dash? Because that date on the left and the date on the right is not going to be very significant. What is going to be significant about the mark that you leave on this planet is what you're doing with your dash. What are you doing with it? I want to help you and I want to motivate you to do something great with it today. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel chapter 21. King David had a life in the dash. And we've seen the king and his covenant as the Lord establishes this eternal covenant of blessing with King David. The king in his prayer, where the king says, that's an awesome covenant, that's an awesome promise, God. Just do what you've promised to do. And we've seen the king in his glory, as he's gone out and fought battles and won them, as he's gone out and loved people who were unlovable and exercised compassion on people who were needy. We've seen him do incredible things leadership-wise. We've seen the king in his shame as he's walked away from the goodness of God and, and, he, and he walked in immorality and walked in murder and walked in the abuse of power. But then we saw him, the king in his repentance where he says, I don't want to live that life anymore. I don't want to walk away from you. I want to come to you and enjoy your grace and your forgiveness. And we've seen the king in his brokenness. And last week, how how sobering was it to walk through the life of David in his brokenness and us look in the mirror and say our lives are broken as well. How sobering. And so now we come to the king in his dash. The king in his dash. And what the narrator wants us to do is just fix our eyes on this king And he wants us to say this was his life in his dash. And it's not so much about the chronology, it's about the significance of who he was and what he did. And the first thing that he wants to show us is that the king leads covenantally. The king leads covenantally. And I do think I made up that word covenantally. Okay? But but we're going to roll with it and you'll see why we're rolling with it. So if you look at verse 1, it says there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. 
And we, we, we want to observe immediately that David is a man of prayer and that he prays passionately. It doesn't say merely that David prayed. It doesn't say merely that he went and got the ephod again. It says that he sought the what? The face of the Lord. Look, there's a difference between praying and praying. David was praying. He was seeking the face of the Lord. I need to know you. I need to know I need to know your will. I need to know your design. I need to know what you need us to do. And I want to get through the, the fluff of all of the prayer language and all of that mess. And I want to see you and know your will because we are a desperate people. So he prays passionately to his covenant God and the Lord responds to him and says, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. What is that? If you go back and read 1 Samuel, or like, where did that happen? No, what happened was, first of all, we would have to go back to the book of Joshua, chapter 6. And in Joshua, Joshua is leading the people of Israel into the land of Canaan and they're taking over one city after another city after another city. And they're about to approach into the land of Gibeon. And the Gibeonites don't want to have to deal with this Israelite people who's coming in and taking over the land. And so what do they do? They put on a bunch of old raggedy clothes. They put on some old raggedy sandals. They take some molded bread. They take these old wineskins. And they act like they're nomads. And they go into the Israelite camp and they say they're foreigners. And they say, we've heard about this Israelite God. We've heard that He's powerful. And we want to come underneath His authority so that we can experience His grace. And Joshua and the leaders of Israel at this time believe Him. They don't know any, any different. And so... And so they said, we want to cut a covenant with you. And Joshua says, we will cut a covenant with you. And so essentially, so essentially, Joshua cuts an animal in half, parts the animal as they do when they cut covenants. And Joshua says, we will protect you. We will take care of you. And we will walk through the middle of this cut covenant as it were. And if we violate this covenant to protect you, then may the Lord do to us what we just did to this animal. Okay? That's a serious deal. All right? Fast forward 400 years. Saul is zealous to build his kingdom. Saul is zealous about Israel and Judah, and he wants to be preeminent in all of the land, and so he decides he is going to wipe out the Gibeonites. Is that a good, good idea or a bad idea? It's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. And the main reason it's a bad idea is because he's breaking the what? The covenant. No matter how wise it was, no matter how good it was, it was still a covenant that had to be kept or else, or else life had to be paid. Blood had to be spilled. And so, what David finds out is that the reason that the famine is going on in the land is because King Saul led Israel into the breaking of a serious and binding covenant. So let's see what happens. The king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. 
Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul sought to strike down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. In other words, money can't take care of this. All right, He came after us. He destroyed our family. He, he almost wiped us completely off the face of the earth. Money can't buy what we owe, what is owed to us. And so they say, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. In other words, we don't want to start a war. And he said, well, what do you say that I shall do for you? And they said to the king, the man who consumed us, i.e. Saul, and planned to destroy us, so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Okay, so I want to say something here. This is a very difficult passage to interpret. Um, is this a good decision or a bad decision that David is making? The narrator doesn't let us in whether or not it's good or bad. He doesn't say, and David did what pleased the Lord, or what David did discouraged the Lord. He doesn't say that. I do know that in the Old Testament Torah, the first five books, that if anybody breaks a covenant and sheds someone's blood, the only way for the land to receive blessing again is that by that man his blood shall be shed. I do know that. I also know that in Deuteronomy, that a father shall not pay for the son's sins and that a son shall not pay for the father's sins. And so I, I can't say for sure that David is acting absolutely righteously in this, but I believe that he is trying to follow the will of the Lord and that he's trying to honor the covenant the covenant that had been set between the people of Israel and the people of Gideon. And this is what we should know, church, and this is what we absolutely should know, is that atonement, atonement is never nice, it's never clean, it's never perfect, it's never nice and tidy. It's always ugly, it's always gruesome, it's always terrible. It always is. I mean, if you even think about an Israelite worshiper who would take a bull and slit that bull's throat and then skin it and then pull its parts and then grab the inside and then order, offer it up as an atonement for sin. That's ugly. That's gruesome. And I'm going to tell you, we, we get this idea of atonement. We get this idea of atonement as if it's just merely a doctrine. It is the, it is the appeasement of God's righteous anger against wrath. It is, it is a wrath-satisfying sacrifice. Now those definitions are absolutely right. And we look up at a cross, and church, it is a nicely stained 
cross. It is perfectly symmetrical to the ceiling. It hangs against the backdrop of a beautiful rock backdrop. We look at it and it looks so nice. But in reality, that is nothing of what atonement is. Atonement is bloody. It is gruesome. Life is offered. Blood is shed. It is a terrible thing because blood has to be spilled. And that's what's going on here. David believes blood has to be spilt because that's what the Gibeonites insist on. And we will find that the Lord ends up blessing. And so look, the king spared though, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Why is that verse here? It's like it should be in a parenthesis or something. It's not really a part of the thrust of the story. The reason it's here is because the narrator in this epilogue wants us to see that Saul was a king who didn't keep covenant. David is a king who keeps covenant. Saul was a king who was about building his own kingdom and his own glory. And David is a king who wants to deal compassionately with people who need him. And so he... he he maintains his covenant that he established with Jonathan. Verse 8, The king took the two sons of Rizbah, the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest, at the beginning of barley harvest. So you have two sons of Saul by uh, Rizpah, who was not really a wife, it was a concubine, and, and then five grandsons of, of Saul are put to death here. And Rizpah is no longer just a mere trophy. She's no longer just kind of a, a reward that Saul had and that ultimately Abner had. Now she is a mother. She is a compassionate, loving mother out from underneath the, the domain, I guess, or the sovereign rule of those men who had used her and abused her. Now she has two sons that she cares for and she has nothing to say and nothing to do in order to release them. She has to watch them be murdered and then to experience the gruesome some awful, um, in her part, agony of watching potentially birds and animals just rip the flesh off of her son's bones. So what happens? Rizba, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. Man, she was... She was vigilant by day, sleepless by night, trying to protect the dignity of her sons. And when David was told what Rizba, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines had killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan. And they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish his father. And they did all that the king commanded. What's the thrust of this? 
the thrust of this, and it is possible that Rizpah not only stayed days, not just weeks, but possibly months with her sons hanging up there impelled by the Gibeonites. And David gets word of it, and he says in his compassion and in his love and in his covenant with his people, I'm going to go and exercise compassion. I'm going to go and get the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan. We're going to gather them together, and we're going to bury all of them in their land and give them some kind of dignity in their death and alleviate some of the suffering of Rizbah. And what happens after all of that? God responded to the plea for the land. So, the reason that I say that the king dealt covenantally that, that He deals, that He leads covenantally, is that He prays passionately to His covenant God. He acts prudently for His covenant people. He saves graciously for His covenant friendship to David, I mean to Jonathan. He moves decisively for His covenant commitments. He deals compassionately with His covenant people. And then He blesses collectively for all of the people of God who are in covenant with Him. This is David in a difficult time, in a confusing time, trying to keep covenant as best as he can for the glory of God, for the joy of the people that he serves, and to maintain his own commitments in the life that he has lived. This is the king leading covenantally. And if we have not said it already ten times, church, if we've not already said it at least ten times as we've walked through these months of Samuel, God has called us to be a covenant people. We're in covenant with our God. We're in covenant with each other. We're in covenant with relationships. We're in covenant in family. We are in covenant. We have cut a covenant with one another and primarily first with God and we say we're not going to leave you or forsake you because we know you won't leave or forsake us. We're not going to leave or forsake one another because we know that Christ will never do that to us and so we're not going to do that to one another. We will keep covenant because God is a covenant God and He wants His people to be a covenant people. The first mark of the king and his dash is that he leads covenantally. The second mark is that the king battles courageously. He battles courageously. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with, with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of the giants, Sounds like a descendant of a giant. <laughs> Ishbi Benab, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, intended to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, David, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibekai the Hushathite struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jeroragim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, which likely should read Lami the Gittite the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature, 
who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. 24 in number. I call him Mr. 24. Since he doesn't have a name, we'll give him a WWF name. Mr. 24. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. The king battles courageously. The narrator wants us to know that. We've seen it time and time again in 1 Samuel and then again in 2 Samuel. And so he's giving us a very short synopsis of the mindset of David as a leader and as a warrior, but he's also giving us a a real insight into the leadership of David. Because we see David going out as an older man, as a king who is precious and he must not be struck down. And what are we seeing about David? We are seeing that he is a great leader and that he inspires courage in the people that he leads. I want to tell you something about leadership that David gives us an imprint for. Leaders aren't necessarily to go out and do everything. Leaders are to inspire courage, to train, to equip, to bless, to mobilize people in the kingdom to work and labor, and to demonstrate the kind of courage that comes from knowing God and seeking His face. And that's exactly what David is doing. He is a great king. He's courageous as a young man. He's courageous as an old man. He's courageous in battle. He's courageous in, in the, on the throne. But what we see is that he inspires courage in the people that he leads. Okay. The third mark of the first half of the epilogue in 2 Samuel is that the king worships passionately. The king worships passionately. And this is the the pinnacle of this section. We see it first in we see it in chapter 22. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now I want to I want to make a couple of observa- I want you to make a couple of observations with me. I want you to observe how many times the word deliver, save, salvation, rescue and brought out are used. It's a lot. And he uses it throughout this song. He is essentially going to say that God is a Savior. He is one who brings salvation. I want you also want to observe the word rock and how many times David refers to his God as a rock. Now before we look at the song, which is really a prayer, I want to say that as I, as I have read this time and again throughout the week, that this has to be the greatest song with the greatest lyrics that I've ever read. Yeah. That's saying a lot. But I'm telling you, it inspires awe of God and excitement about God. Yeah. And, 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 and I just want to say this, that nothing quite testifies to the greatness of God and the glory of God, quite like people who stand in awe of Him. 
who, who sing in awe of Him, who live in awe of God. Nothing quite magnifies His beauty. Nothing quite puts a spotlight on the perfections of God quite like people who literally are in awe of how beautiful He is. We have to get out of knowing the right truths, of saying the right theology, of, how, uh, of uttering the right things, but not walking in absolute mesmerized awe of this God who is great. Amen. Right. Phil, I thought about you this week, and I thought um, I, I really would encourage you not to stop uh, writing songs. Amen. Because um, songs that you write um, produce awe in the greatness of God and in the glory of Christ. So please don't stop that. Now, let's begin to look at why God is so great. What would David say? David Sway, he's a personal Savior. He says, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Keep your eyes on the text. He uses the words my me and I 15 times. He draws upon every aspect of his life calling God his rock, his fortress, his deliverer, his refuge, his shield. He's looking around him in his life and everything that is great and glorious and impenetrable and awesome and mighty and a protective nature, he calls God that. I'm looking at this rock or I'm standing on this rock and God, I know that nobody can get me here. That's what you are to me. David is living his life with, it, with, it, with open eyes and an open heart, trying to articulate about God all that God is in his life. He's a personal Savior to me. I, I just can't, can't move on without saying that the single most important attribute about David is his relationship to God. Man, he, he thinks about God. He meditates on God. He directs his life toward God. His, his, his um, ambitions and his attitudes and his leadership are all directed toward how is God going to be glorified. And even when he walks away from God and sins against God and rebels against God, he is confronted with the holiness of God and he turns right back to God because he knows that his life is directed toward God. And listen, church, you and I must must do the same thing. We have to have our center to be God Himself. And if our center is anything but God, our life is all wrong. Yeah. And so He calls God His personal Savior. He says not only that, He's a preeminent listener. For the ways of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. And get this, from His temple, He heard my voice. And my cry 
came to His ears. I pride myself in being a good listener. But I want to tell you something. If you tell me your problems, I will hear them. And I will have compassion on them. But I'm no listener like God is. God is in His holy temple. He hears with His perfect ears. And He hears with His powerful nature. And He can affect change in your life as you call out to Him and cry out to Him because He is not only preeminent in His power, He is preeminent in His ability to hear and act on what you tell Him. That's what David would say. He is a preeminent listener. He's a powerful warrior. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked. Why? Because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around Him His canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before Him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered His voice, and He sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare. At the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of His nostrils. What is going on? The Lord here is angry at the enemies who have put His anointed at danger. All of creation reflects the anger of the Lord. Listen, this isn't just an image of a God eager to save His King. This is an image of a God who is fixed on the enemies who are threatening His King. His anointed. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you something. David would say to you, your God is a powerful warrior. He will fight for you. He will come down to planet earth and, and live for you. He will die for you. He will do whatever it takes for you to maintain His covenant love and, to, and feel His blessing in your life. He will do whatever it takes. He's done it for me. He'll do it for you if you're in covenant with Him. He's a powerful warrior. He's a passionate rescuer. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. Look down at verse 20. He rescued me because He delighted in me. I was uh, 12 years old, had gone to a 
high school graduation celebration of my cousins and the entire family, like 30 people, were going to be caravanning to the place of, of the graduation. We got there a couple of hours early and I was the only child and so I asked if I could go out back and play and my mom and dad said, yes, you can, J just don't go back to the creek. And they told me that because they didn't want me to get dirty with all my nice clothes on. And so the time lasted, and I was throwing a tennis ball up against a brick wall. And uh, after two or three hundred times of doing that, I got a little bored. And I just, I saw in the creek, hanging from a tree, a rope. <laughs> and uh, I had red huckleberry fin, and I had... I, I, I didn't have a creek like this, and uh, everything about it was inviting. And so um, I went back to the creek, and I ran, and I jumped, and it was in the middle. I jumped, and I'm sure that the way that it was normally operated, that someone would go down on the creek, grab the rope, and then you know walk it back to the side so that you could... That's probably the way it would work, but, but I didn't. I was 12, I didn't know that, and so I ran and I tried to grab the rope and I fell about three feet short and landed into the rocks and the mud and the mire of the creek and I was in significant pain. I couldn't move. I bet I was there 20 minutes and everybody is getting in their cars going to to the graduation, and surely somebody at some point says, well, where's Ryan? <laughs> so my mom and dad and some others go off on looking for him, and, and sure enough, my dad and my mom come to the edge of the creek and look down over it and see me crying, muddy from head to toe. Now let me ask you this. Do you think that my mom and dad said, you got yourself into this trouble. You get yourself out. Do you think that they walked, turned around and walked and went to that graduation by themselves? No. No. They waded down into the creek. They picked me up. They carried me out. And they took me to the hospital. Why? Because they delight in me. I'm their son. They love me. Now if sinful, broken parents are willing to rescue their children when they are so foolish, how much more does our Heavenly Father come to rescue us when we are foolish and we are down in the dirt and in our own foolish decisions put ourselves in terrible conditions? We have a God who rescues us. We have a God who comes to us. Let's never, ever forget how much He loves us. Amen? Amen? Yeah, right. Good, Ryan. He's not only a passionate rescuer, He's a proper rewarder. I will admit that is a stretch on the alliteration. He is a proper rewarder, but it is factual. It's factual because if you look at what David says, this is, this is a little bit, some think, a red herring. What is David saying here? Listen, he says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He rewarded me. 
I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all His rules were before me, and from His statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before Him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in His sight. And church, right now, all you can think about is what David did in chapter what? 11. And so this is the conclusion that I have drawn. David is not saying I've been a perfect person. He's not saying I've been a perfect worshiper. He's not saying I've never sinned. What he's saying is that I'm a whole person and that I've related my life to God and that even when I turn away from the goodness of God and the grace of God, God draws me back and I realize that my life, it belongs to Him. That my heart belongs to Him. And that even in my sin, I come back to Him in repentance because my life, if it's worth anything, revolves around the centrality of the glory of God. I think that's what he's saying. But at the very same time, I don't want to blunt it. I don't want to blunt it, church. I believe that it is the old-time religion that God does reward those who walk faithfully under His authority. God brings judgment and punishment to those who walk outside of His glory and His authority and say, I don't want to have anything to do with God. I want to live my own life in my own way. Thank you very much. I think I'll go this way. People like Saul, God brings judgment on. People like David, God brings grace on. Why? Because everything that David did related to God, even in the midst of his sin, he repented and came back to Him. He's a proper rewarder. He rewards those who come to Him in their sin, but also in their obedience to Him and their courage. He's a perfect protector. He says, with a merciful, you show yourself Merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. Guys, let's read that again. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. Now, David is thinking in very real terms, in very physical terms. He's run against troops. He's leaped over walls. And he has confidence that God will grant him the ability to do that time and again. He says, this God, His way is perfect. The Word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. Uh, There is a sense in which some of this is getting redundant, but it's beautifully redundant. Why is it beautifully redundant, church? Because if David wrote a song and simply said, the Lord... He is my Savior. He is my Rescuer. He is my Protector. Praise His name. Amen. He would tell us some really important facts 
but we wouldn't feel it. We wouldn't experience it. And we wouldn't know what proper worship is. Because proper worship meditates on the greatness of God, the holiness of God, and begins to think about it, begins to write about it, begins to sing about it. And there are not enough words to say about the glory of God. And so when we sing, and when we pray, and when we write, and when we think, and when we converse, it is not improper for us to go on and on about God and His glory. He says He's a perfect protector. He now says something very important. He says He's a proven equipper. He's a proven equipper. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer. And He set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but He didn't answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners! They came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortress. And some of you, especially the kinder, kinder, gentler kinds of people are like, how is this worship? (laughs) I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I stamped them down like the mire of the streets. I want to tell you something, church, what's beautiful about this. You look at it and you're appalled. Let me tell you what's beautiful about it. God is willing to, to work with broken, terrible people and broken and terrible cultures because he's saying, I'm not going to abandon humanity. And David lived in a culture that was all about sexual virility and violence. Just look at the Philistines. 
Look at the Edomites. Look at the Amalekites. Look at all of the Canaanite land. Look at what archaeology discovers about what they were like. It was nothing but blood and violence and sex and all of this. And God says, I am willing to work through it so that I will not abandon a people. So that I will work in it, I will work through it. And while David works in it and works through it, I'm going to care for him. And listen, I'll ask Jamie this this morning. I said, Jamie, what do you think your great-grandmother would do if she was transported into 2016 and saw the same things that we see and experienced the same things that we experience? Billboards, televisions, computer screens, um, actions, words. What do you think she would say? And Jamie had one word. She would be appalled. But God's not giving up on us. And He's going to work through all this. And He's going to work in all this. Because that's what God always does. Whether it's sex or violence or immorality or any of these other things, He will work through it just like He worked through David and the violence that He demonstrated. Now that's more theological than it is exegetical, but we need to understand that. Before we look down our noses at other generations, and before we stamp ourselves as the righteous, as the righteous ones, we need to understand that we're still broken, and that we still conform to our culture more than we do to the greatness of God these days. We're just blind to it. That's right. yeah. Yeah. Well, he equips... He equips, he equipped David for battle. He, he equipped David for victory. And church, I cannot go without saying, he equips us for battle and he equips us for victory. We have everything that we need to fight every battle that he gives us. Primarily, in Ephesians chapter 6, we have the armor of God that we should put on every day. Okay, let's look finally at the last two aspects of God in David's passionate worship. He says, He is a potent deliverer. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me. You delivered me from men of violence." God, You a powerful deliverer, a potent deliverer. It doesn't matter where I go or what trouble I get in, You will bring me out. Praise Your name. Finally, He is a promise keeper. He is a promise keeper. For this, I will praise You, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing praises to Your name. Great salvation He brings to His King and shows steadfast love to His anointed, to David and His offspring. For how long? Forever. Forever. The Lord had entered into David's life. And He says, I will make you a great name. I will make your people a great people. I will establish your throne forever and I will bless everyone forever because of my promise to you and my covenant with you. And David trusts in it. He believes in it. And he stamps his life on it. And he stakes all that he is on it because God is a promise keeper. And for that reason, he says at the very end of this glorious song, I worship you passionately because of who you are. So David calls God his rock. 
six times. Church, I want to ask for a little feedback here. When, when David calls God his rock, what is he saying about God? He's immovable. Had it in my notes. He is absolutely immovable. Steadfast. Solid. Good, Carolyn. Enduring. Good, Chris. Indestructible. Okay. I don't know if I can remember all this. He's indestructible. He's solid. He's enduring. He's steadfast. He's immovable. He's mighty. Good. He's a place of safety. Right? And listen, this is what I want to say. And David didn't know the rest of the story. How do these words ring? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock. What? All other ground is what? All other ground is... Church, I want to implore you today, do not trust in the sinking sand of financial security. Do not trust in the sinking sand of a beautiful family. Do not trust in the sinking sand of having a dream job. Do not trust in the sinking sand of the of what the culture says is absolutely necessary for you to have a happy and fulfilled life. But trust on the rock. His name is Jesus Christ. He gave His life for you. He shed His blood for you. If you stand on His rock, you will be immovable. You will be impenetrable. You will be steadfast. You will be rock solid. Not because you're great, but because Jesus is. For you note takers, I want to leave you with one thing here. I want to leave you with a big idea. David is a good king that precedes the greater king. You see, David led covenantally. And he did everything that he could to try to keep the covenants that had been established. Jesus Christ, the greater King, He comes to planet earth and He cuts an entirely new covenant. And He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. The old is gone. The new has come. Come underneath my blood. You come underneath my covenant and you're secure forever. David was a good king. Why? Because he battled courageously. But the text told us that there came a time in his life where he grew weary and had to come off the battlefield. You know about the greater king? He didn't come off the battlefield. And when he grew weary, he persevered all the way to the end until he said, it is finished. Yeah, that's right. David was a good king. He passionately worshiped God. But the greater King, He is God. And He is worthy of passionate worship. And so why don't we meditate on the King Jesus and let's worship Him with great passion today because it's on His rock.
that we stand. Amen? Father, we thank you that you are a God who comes, a God who saves. And so we thank you that you've come to us and that you've made covenant with us. You made covenant with David. You made covenant again through Christ. You've made covenant with us. And Father, we just want to ask for your blessing onto every tribe and that you would come to tribes, to nations, through the, the, the love of these missionaries and that you would make covenant with people who don't even know your name right now. Father, we pray that you would show yourself mighty to save. Amen. Father, continue to bless our fellowship today for your glory, for our joy, and for the salvation of the lost. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.